Bill Hauser is an entrepreneur in his prime. His company, SMB Team, has scaled to tens of millions in revenue and over 60 full-time employees in less than five years. In this interview, we discuss all of that and Bill talks about why it is important to have resolve when setting a goal for yourself. Here is Bill Hauser. The success that you've accomplished with SMB Team is wildly inspirational. To really quickly give people a snapshot of where you guys are, team size, revenue, stuff like that. Can you just give people that picture and then we'll build up uh, some of the decisions that made that possible? Yeah. Um, so at this point, which is crazy, you know, five years ago, I was making cold calls in the basement of my apartment complex to uh, attorneys and contractors to try and sell them my marketing services. Uh, that was five years ago. And now we are uh, coming up on 60, 60, 60 full-time W-2 employees. Um, and we are right at around the uh, 20 million uh, annual recurring revenue mark in our agency. And um, we're rated the 729th fastest growing company in the entire United States, privately owned company, according to Inc. 5000. Um, and uh, yeah, was voted Entrepreneur of the Year finalist in Philadelphia. So, um, and it all just came really, really, really fast. Uh, and I'm excited to share some of the key decisions I think that led to that. Um, but I'd be, I'd be, uh, you know, a lunatic to sit here and say, you know, it was all my creation. It was uh, the the power of just the team that we've built. Absolutely. So I, I was prepping for this interview and I have a good friend who is in, uh, he, he is the, the co-owner of a law firm and has been through some of the kind of like sales process that, that SMB team offers to law firms like his. And the thing that he said stood out to you is exactly the same thing that stood out to me when I've heard you speak in other instances, which is a comfort with ambition. I'm not saying that's, that's solely the, the thing that, um, you know, it, it is a cause, as you said, there's, there's a multitude of causes, but in terms of getting comfortable with a really big audacious ambition, one that, you know, if, if you haven't, you know, built the muscle up, can feel uncomfortable to say out loud to someone or to kind of proclaim confidently. Can you talk specifically about where you think that origin is just, just in your nature and why that's an important ingredient towards having you know, success come relatively rapidly. I think a lot of entrepreneurs who become successful, they start creating these lies to create an image in their public perception, right? So when you talk to people like, uh, or when you hear interviews from people like Mark Zuckerberg and, you know, Jeff Bezos and, people like that who have become multi-billionaires, they all have the same story where it's like, well, it all just kind of happened and it just spiraled out of control. And what they don't show you, like Bill Gates calls it the 10 dark years, right? And, you know, when, when these successful founders of companies explain their path to success, they do it with this, uh, this like harmless hero concept where they were a reluctant leader and things just picked up and then they, they had to learn how to lead because it just works so well. And what I find really interesting is I watched this one interview because uh, there's one company that's honest about the growth journey and that's Google. Uh, and the former CEO of Google, Eric Schmidt, he has this interview that he did with um, 
Reed Hoffman, the founder of LinkedIn, and it's called the Blitzscaling Interviews. And the founder of LinkedIn, Reed, he does these interviews with all these very successful founders. And Eric Schmidt and Marissa Meyer, who was one of the first uh, first 20 or so hires at Google when they were literally just a startup, they have this complete opposite explanation on how Google became what it became. And they explained that it was so much work and people were literally criticized if they left the office by 5 p.m. on Saturdays. Like you were looked at as an underperformer if you left the office at five on a Saturday. And, and it was so much push and it was so many failures and it was all of this grit. And what people see is most of these stories where the entrepreneur pretends as though it was some simple path where it just happened. So I'll lead with that story and then I'll kind of back up to how I got to the place where I felt that is easier for me to be open about my aggression and my ambition than it is to be covert about my intentions. So what happened with me is I became addicted at one point in my life to feeling anxiety. And it's almost like a drug addict who becomes addicted to a drug. I became addicted to anxious thinking. And I believe that a lot of um, controllable mental disorders, they actually stem from uh, an addictive quality of sorts, uh, which materializes as a perceived disorder, which by the way, you know, it's, it's funny, 200 years ago, there was no such thing as disorders. There was just personality types and there's just human beings and that's crazy Donnie and that's crazy Betty and that's it. And everyone just accepted people. And then this thing happened with medication where, you know, uh, people started learning, oh, wow, we can prescribe medications to people and label it as their solution. Uh, their, their one quick pill as a solution to who they really are. And, and now this whole prescription medication uh, you know, movement picks up and now psychologists pop up out of nowhere and, and people start becoming labeled. And uh, that happened to me in 2008. My family went bankrupt. I, I received a suicide note from my mom who was about to take her own life when our family was a million dollars in debt. And I didn't know it when I was in my teens. And two, two years after that, um, I received a text. My dad, uh, our, our whole family had gone bankrupt. My dad moved out of my house and I didn't see him for two years. And I called from him one day, he was crying on the phone uh, and he hung up on me. And minutes later, I received a, a text message from this woman that he was living with. And in that text message, I had saw a video of him with a gun to his head. Um, and he was also about to take his own life because of the pressure of the bankruptcy. So not only my mom, but also my dad, both my parents uh, almost took their own lives. and. We lost everything. Everything we owned got repossessed in a very short time window. Um, and I immediately, right after that happened, I went to college and I experienced the most traumatic anxiety disorder for five years or so, um, you know, four, four-ish years. And I was, co- I was private about it for probably three quarters of the time. Uh, where, so three, three of the four years or so I was private about my anxiety problems. And one day I just, I had a complete mental breakdown. It was outside of this, uh, computer center at Temple university where I went and I called my mom and I basically told her screwed up in the head and I need help. Like I need, I need to see a doctor. And my mom actually cried in joy, um, which is an odd reaction to that because she was worried 
that I was going to shield off all these emotions from our family's bankruptcy and almost suicides, I was covering that up, right? And she was actually very happy as a parent that I was becoming aware of the fact that there was an imbalance in me. And what had happened at that point was I was working at a job in a Fortune Fortune 100 insurance company, uh, now known as Chubb Insurance. So it's a very big company. And I was just another person in there doing data entry and, and insurance work. And I always felt like uh, I had all this energy behind me, but I was limiting myself because of whatever society's expectations were on me. And when I started seeing my psychologist, which was such a beautiful experience, I started identifying um, you know, what I actually wanted to do and who I actually was. And that the anxiety was more of a materialization of me limiting myself than what had happened in my past, right? And as soon as I had that realization and realized I was addicted to anxious thinking, I was addicted to making myself a victim from all this stuff that happened in my life, I walked into a Barnes and Noble bookstore and uh, I was just searching for a different way of thinking. And I found this book called Think and Grow Rich. And I picked it up and I read the entire book. Actually, I cried when I read the book in the back of, it was the third story of a Barnes and Noble at 15th and Spruce in Philadelphia. And I started crying because I was like, oh my gosh, instead of being addicted with anxiety, instead of being addicted with this person I've become, which was this anxious person, I can become addicted with success, right? And the book talked about this concept called auto-suggestion. And auto-suggestion is self-suggestion, meaning you suggest to yourself in the written word or out loud, preferably, your goals, right? So at the, at the peak of me, you know, when I finished this book, at the peak of, uh, you know, uh, my anxiety, and wanting to create this transformation, I decided, asked myself a very powerful question. If I didn't have this anxiety, what would I be capable of? I wrote down this whole list of stuff. Well, I'd run a business of this size and I'd have this going on and I'd have this and this on my friendships would be. And I wrote this whole list of stuff. And then the next day I said to myself, I'll just write it down again tomorrow. Write it down again tomorrow. I'll write it down again. And now it's been, I don't know, six to seven years now, every single day I've written down my goals. I've, I've recited my goals out loud publicly. Um, and we've built a company that is built on that same ethos, that same transparency where, you know, we don't just didn't build SMB team as a reluctant hero. I built SMB team through disciplined goal setting and execution. I built SMB team by saying, I want to do X in revenue. I'm going to create a three-year vision on this. I'm going to create a financial plan to make this come true. I'm going to measure the key performance indicators that have to be hit in, in order to reach that annual goal, which ladders up to the three-year goal, and build a team of people who now are responsible for each of those numbers that produce that annual plan, that produce that three-year goal. So that same cheat code that I used personally to overcome my own ailments was the cheat code that I've been using in business. And it's a, it's a fun cheat code because nobody uses it. Everyone wants to, everyone wants to be hush hush about their goals. And there's going to be a couple of people who are loud about their goals and create, uh, you know, I want to be trapped in my goals. I want to say something so big and I want it to be recorded and I want it to be put out in front of tens of thousands of people 
so that I look like a dumbass if I don't reach what I just said. I want to trap myself to the goals that I said because I am scarred by a family and an upbringing that said a lot of great things, but we didn't follow through on those things and we ended up losing everything. And I'm scarred by that. And I know that public accountability is the fuel that a lot of us need to bring our goals and turn them into reality. So uh, in the same spirit with the Napoleon Hill uh, Think and Grow Rich, uh, in addition to auto-suggestion, one of the other things that I really took away from that book is the um, kind of uh, real or imagined uh, collection of mentors. You know, expert counsel, actually going out and seeing expert counsel, but also if you can't necessarily speak to that person because they're from another time or they're just inaccessible to you, building a model of, you know, what would Andrew Carnegie do in this situation? What would Abraham Lincoln do in this situation? And speaking to them, who is on Bill's personal, uh, you know, theoretical table that one would be speaking to? Yeah. So, I mean, that's a key piece of it too, is I, I don't, I, I always joke when I started the agency, I ran out of answers year and a half in, meaning I knew how to build landing pages and PPC campaigns. I knew how to sell stuff on the phone. And after a year and a half, I used all my skills in those areas. I ran out of answers. So now I got a choice. Am I going to just build my life at the limit of what my current capabilities are? This is why I disagree with strengths based psychology. Like you should just go all in on your strengths, right? And there's certain cognitive factors. Yes, you should respect within yourself. Like if you're a high creative, you're probably going to be low on detail. That is a cognitive factor or more of a cognitive factor in the brain where it's going to be harder to, if you're creative to become detail oriented. So that's a, that's a factor we don't really want to change. We probably want to go all in on the gift of creativity more than high detail. But when it comes to tactical skills, I refuse to ever be limited to what my current capabilities are. So if I'm not good at PPC, if I'm good at PPC and our clients say they want SEO, okay, well, I better get good at SEO. And if our clients say they want coaching, okay, better get good at coaching. And if I'm da, 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 da the list goes on and on and on, right? And how do you fill in that gap? When you know you need to conquer something new, but you don't yet have the skills for it, um, that's where mentors come in, right? So mentors fill in the gap of where you are now to where you want to be, and you can just buy people's wisdom instead of going through the same trials and tribulations that they did. So that's what I do now. I I spend $600,000 a year on mentors, um, coaches, I mean, two weeks from now, I'm going to Inner Circle, which is $50,000 a year the week before that or a couple of days before that, I'm going to the war room, which is 30 or $40,000 a year. Next Monday or three days from now, I'm going to strategic coach, which is another $50,000 a year program. Um, and so I, I put my money where my mouth is because I ran out of answers a long time ago. Um, so those are just examples of like coaching programs that I'm in. I'm personally coached by um, Cameron Harold, the former chief operating officer of 1-800-GOT-JUNK. I meet with him two times a month. That's $50,000 a year. Um, you know, so mentors for me come from books, right? They come from actually paying money to be in the room with people who have been where you want to be. Um, and then it comes from one-on-one coaches, uh, which, uh, which I do with Cameron Herald. I have a fitness coach. I have someone who holds me accountable to the foods that I eat every single week that I have to send reports to. 
I have, uh, I have a coach for my leadership. I have a coach for every single area of my life. Um, you know, I heard that once LeBron James spends like, I don't know, $1.3 million, something like crazy on his body. Right. And then you look at the most successful sports teams and there's like an offensive lineman coach. There's like a running back coach. There's a quarterback's coach. There's an offensive uh, coordinator. There's a defensive coordinator. Like there's literally like 18 different coaches in, in the most successful, well-orchestrated teams on planet earth. But yet most of us, we follow the rugged individualism approach where we think, oh, I'm deficient if I need a coach, right? And also a lot of us have, we have ego problems, especially when you're talented. It would be way easier ego wise for me to just surround myself with people who aren't as smart as me, right? And just hire people who are not as smart as me and just be in this protected bubble where everyone's saying, oh, Bill's so smart. But I want to be put in opposite of that environment. I want to be put in the environment where I literally feel like a dweeb. I don't know what that word means, but we used it in high school, right? I want to feel like a complete no-name person when I go into a room. That is such a healthy cleansing feeling. Like two months ago, Grant Cardone, uh, who's also mentored me a lot, he flew, uh, he flew me and like 30 other influencers-ish free of charge. And we spent two days with him. We got dinner with him two nights in a row. We went on a yacht with him. Um, and, and I was like a little pew in the room. And I told Grant this when we were at one of the dinners, I'm like, dude, every single person I met here is doing like tens of millions of dollars a year, like huge brands. Um, and I felt like a little, little twerp and that's healthy. So, so that, that's kind of a little bit of the concept behind mentors. And then also some of the mentors that I've learned from, I mean, there's, there's, there's mentors I've learned how to sell from stage from like Myron Golden, Jason Fladlin, Pete Vargas, um, who I've paid money to all of them, uh, to, to learn Russell Brunson's taught me a lot, um, on that. So, you know, there's, there's that there's leadership, uh, and then there's, you know, other business operations components where I've seeked out mentorship. Inverting the coaching principle now to how you're actually helping clients. So it's a, a marketing agency where that, you know, they're coming to you for pay-per-click SEO website, other factors like that. But what, what's also stands out to me is you tie coaching into the offer. And to me that, you know, as, as I kind of look at it from, from uh, external view, there's, you know, some degree, a something like a PPC or an SEO to someone who's not sophisticated can feel commoditized. It can feel like, okay, why is this PPC provider off the shelf different from that PPC provider, even if there is more like kind of domain niche understanding, adding in the coaching, adding in the framing, the contextualization and the unlocks the same way you've, you've experienced as the buyer of coaching is a really interesting blend. So can you talk a little bit about how SMB team brings that to market and how that differentiates you guys? Yeah. So, I mean, all product innovation at some way, it should stem from consumer feedback and we have a core value at our company called Extreme Ownership. And Jocko Willink wrote a book called Extreme Ownership, who I've interviewed a few times. And so in Jocko's book, Extreme Ownership, it talks about the concept that you are essentially responsible for everything that happens in your life. 
It's the happiest way to live your life is to go to bed at night feeling like I, I created, if I got into a car accident, I did something to create that. Even if it was the other person's fault. Like it's just a way better life to just never blame anyone except for yourself. The things you could or could not control. It's called an internal locus of control in psychology. And one day, like got really frustrated with my team because we were doing, we were building really good PPC campaigns for our clients, but our clients were saying, they didn't know how to answer the phone. They didn't know how to sell or turn those leads into clients. They didn't know how to grow their law firms as we were getting the more leads. So they were asking us to pause their campaigns, even though they were working. And one day I just got like super mad, I guess, or frustrated. And I was like, why are we tolerating this from clients? Let's, let's ask clients, like, what do you, why can't you grow your business? We're growing ours. Like we're turning up our marketing and we're hiring people. And it turns out like attorneys, they didn't know how to hire people. They didn't know how to manage people. They didn't know how to build a sales process within their business. So first thing I created was a sales university. So we're selling marketing to clients. And then I, I say, okay, great. Let's go solve sales problem for our clients. And I, and I literally created a six and a half hour, seven module uh, with all these sub modules in it training on how do you answer phone calls? How do you objection handle? How do you do needs analysis? How do you do follow-up strategically? And we rolled this out to our clients and lo and behold, they start getting much better results from our marketing. So we start thinking, okay, well, what else did they say they have problems with? And a lot of it had to do with management and recruiting. So we started just saying, okay, well, let's, let's try to help our clients with managing their law firms and, uh, and SMB team was running on a management infrastructure uh, called EOS uh, from the book Traction. And so we're running on quarterly goals uh, with an annual plan that was documented, as I mentioned earlier. And we said, okay, well, what if we just teach our clients how we're running our business, right? And that became the seed of our coaching program, right? Is we started teaching our clients to take their annual goals, turn it into quarterly strategic plans, and then disseminate them out to members of their team so that they could turn their dreams into reality. Um, and, it, and then that, in addition to sales coaching, uh, the, the sales program ended up improving our clients' results even more, right? And then we said, okay, well, what do they need to know about marketing? And we added in marketing coaching as well, um, where now our clients are almost like partners to us because they understand what we're doing for them rather than commoditizing us. And we also train them on how to do their own content marketing. If they want to make videos on YouTube, which we can't do that for them. If they want to be the face, they have to make their own videos or at least make the content. So we train them on how to do that DIY um, in our marketing coaching. So it all stems from this lesson I learned from John Leisure, who is the former CEO of T-Mobile. And I interviewed him for like two weeks straight on this app called Clubhouse in this room I held. It's called the Marketing Mastery Room. And in that room, he always would tell me this same piece of advice. Best CEOs do two things better than their competitors. Listen to their team and they listen to their clients. And then they're not surprised. And what they listen to gets rolled out that their clients and their team is happy. So I just always come back to that. It doesn't matter if I'm a PPC specialist, if my clients tell me that's not what they want or they need some help in some other area, uh, I'm gonna learn whatever skill needs to be learned to adapt in that area. And really, like if we're talking about a lawyer, 
incredibly smart, incredibly capable, well-educated, but not a marketer, right? Like not a business builder necessarily mm-hmm. by trade. And so really in terms of what they might buy, they want business growth. Like if you were actually like yep. trying to like think about what, what lock are they trying to find a key to? It's that. Yep. And they might not even be particularly discerning or, or care that greatly what method or micro tactic is the most effective. Mm-hmm. It's okay. I spent you know all these years, hundreds of thousands of dollars to train to be this you know differentiated skill set, whatever the domain may be. But I actually need this other thing unlocked. Yeah, that's it. We sell the outcome, so we don't sell the pieces of what we do. We sell the outcome, and the outcome is we want to turn whatever your revenue goal is for your law firm to reality. That's it. And sometimes. The marketing that we do is not the most important thing for the law firm owner, right? And that's okay. We can pivot strategies because we're so multifaceted based on what the what the client's true goals are. So you have a business partner, Andrew Stickle, um, and and there's a kind of complementary skill set nature to that. Um, and you know the classic term you you, you cited the whole team at, at the beginning, which makes perfect sense. But the, you know the um, I'm sure he didn't originate it, but I just remember Doc Rivers saying it to the Celtics back when they got KG and Paul Pierce and everyone. He goes, you want to go fast, go alone. You want to go far, go together. When mm-hmm. did you realize that merging businesses and finding a real partner in your own company was going to allow you to go further? So I think um, the biggest problem with partnerships is that there's not a strategic backing, a true validated business reason behind the partnership. Um, so our business was, I don't know, doing around 5 million or so. Um, and what we noticed at, at that time was that our clients were begging for us to not just do their PPC. And we were getting to this limit where we were, we were actually selling PPC and coaching as a, as a combo and, and a la carte separately as well. And clients are small business owners and they don't need a PPC specialist. They need to pay one management fee and have everything handled under one umbrella so that they don't have, feel like they're managing 18 different vendors. And that was clear. However, we didn't have the resources to scale up, um, you know, an SEO division, a website design division, and a social media advertising division um, as fast as we were growing. So I made the decision that Andy and I, who had already been working together, co-promoting events, I made the decision that, you know, this is hard for both of us. You know, this was, these are our babies, right? And when we were solo entrepreneurs really, you know, before this, and the challenge was, do I trust this person to take my, my life's work and merge these entities together uh, to create something that's way, way greater? And what's interesting is by doing that, you know, the, 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 since there was partially an equity exchange for this arrangement that we did, and what I lost in equity and what Andy lost in equity, the net gain from the sharing of our teams and companies allowed us to go from 5 million basically to, you know, 20 million in just over a year. Um, which is I, to do that by yourself would have, it's possible, but it would have been almost unsustainable in the long term. And 
the, and here's the awesome, beautiful thing about when you become an eight figure business, like the valuation of your company, like exponentially skyrockets. Um, so our, you know, the value of our company went from, you know, a couple million dollars to, you know, $45 million. It was valued a few months ago, um, or in our fifth year. So, you know, it's, so many other factors that I wasn't aware of that were benefits to having a, you know, now multi-figure eight, uh, eight figure business rather than having a seven figure business. Can you talk about getting that valuation? Because I know that you're on a 10 year vision for the firm. And, um, I, I would imagine that you kind of got the eye on the prize to some degree, given how consistently you're writing out your goals. You weren't doing that on the basis of selling it. What was, what was the actual thinking there? Just getting the business valued. Uh, well, this was from someone who runs a half billion dollar agency, um, who's actually local to our area that we met with and he does M and a like mergers and acquisitions. And so, um, we do the valuation for a few reasons. So he helped us with the valuation a little bit. Um, and then we also had external valuators come in. Uh, and that's where it came in as an average. And then also I was offered a cash offer for that same amount. Um, so with those averages combined with the cash offer that I received, uh, we settled on 45 as the number. And the reason that's important because as you grow as a company, um, and you attract high level executives, you have to start creating, uh, what are called earn in equity plans and earn in equity plans are where if you hit certain numbers, you can earn in equity to the company. And the only way through which you can earn in is if there's a current valuation at the point of when you started so that the net difference is measured. So that's the primary reason we needed evaluation was for the earn in equity. Got it. That makes sense. Um, so this has been fantastic. Uh, we're aiming towards, towards wrapping up here. Um, can you just go into the significance of the number 256 million? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the 256 number is, um, comes from when I was writing out my goals and all I literally did was I started, it was actually a contemplation. I'm pulling out my phone to do math here. And I started basically just asking myself, what if, okay, and I started telling you, I'm not going to show you, but um, what if we could double our revenues every single year and we could do that for 10 years straight and started with a couple different numbers. Okay, what if we did $500,000 our first year? Okay, well, we'll go five, 500000 to 1 million to 2 million to 4 million to 8 million to 16 million to 32, right? And I started just doing the math out and I... It was like practicing the auto suggestion, goal setting stuff. And I ended up just putting it all in an Excel spreadsheet before I even started the company um, or started selling and looked at it in the Excel spreadsheet and it ended up just landing on 256 in this exercise. And at the time, Grant was, Grant Cardone was having a big impact on my life. And I just, you know, I had recently read his 10X rule book. One concept from that book said, never lower the target. Like never reduce your goals. So I'm looking at this Excel spreadsheet and I'm about to create like the realistic goals for SMB team. I look at the Excel sheet in my apartment at the time and I'm like, do I need to edit this? Wait, is this the goal? And I was just like, thought to myself, wait a second. What if that is the goal? 
Like something caused my subconscious mind to just type all this stuff out. And at that moment, I just said to myself, like, this is going to be, this is going to be it. This is going to be the goal. And that's why it's a weird number. It's not 250. It's 256 just because it ended up being number in an Excel spreadsheet through this random multiplication sequence that I did uh, one day. And significance of that number to me is not, it's, yeah, I'm in love with the pursuit of approaching a goal like that, but money doesn't motivate me. And it's important though. I talk about it a lot, but what's more important to me than that 256 number is what has to happen. Impact do I need to have on my market, the markets that I touch in order to deserve 256 number. And what I've come to terms with is that in order for me to deserve a $256 million per year company on annual recurring revenue, in order for me to deserve that, I have to have produced a $2.5 billion positive impact in the industries that I touch. And all I want, because I'm a sales guy, all I want is a 10% commission. That's it. Not going to ask much. I just want to be commissioned on the, on the economic impact of our activities. Um, and the awesome thing about being in the business growth business is you can actually measure the impact you have on other people's businesses, right? Um, I've chosen deep down to define a $256 million goal. I define that in my mind as a result of A, the impact I'll have on the markets I enter, B, how much of a role model am I as a leader to my clients and to my family? If I can actually hit that goal, regardless of whether whether it's a money goal, whatever, what does that show to my future as me being a role model? what What does the $256 million, what does that mean for like marketing? Like, what does that mean? Like, if you look at all the most successful content marketers right now, most of them have a legit business under them because people are starting to see through the social media fluff. So like, I just see so many benefactors from us reaching this goal as a team. And I want other people to get rich as we reach this goal. I don't want to be the one getting rich. I, I want other people to get rich. I want us all to do this together. And I think that's what's allowed us to create such a powerful culture at our business is we are a team, not a family. Like, okay, in a family, you tolerate mediocre performance because you're related. A team, everyone has to be excellent in their roles, especially if it's a Super Bowl winning team. Everyone's got to hold their weight, right? So I want to create a team of people that have a clear North Star, Right. And I want to prove to not just our clients, our world, my future, my family, my wife, everyone that's involved with me. I want to prove that you can go out into the world, set a goal, reach it, because that was what was missing from my family. Family never had the goal and they stumbled into business every single year. What are we going to make this year was the question every single year that they met with their accountant. They asked, well, how was this year? Like no plan. And look what happened when adversity hit, right? And I want to, I am a, I'm a research scientist for like, how do you set a goal and reach the freaking goal? Make it public, right? Um, I think one of the key decisions that you could ever make in your entire business growth journey is coming to a place of resolve with your goals. Resolve. It's a spiritual calm. It's like a, it's like a, like a, 
Bruce Lee concentrating before. It's not this hype, oh yeah, let me do affirmations about, no, 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 that's hype. I'm talking a deep spiritual knowledge, complete centeredness. I am committing my life to this goal, no distractions. I don't need you to like me. I don't need you to agree to the goal. I don't need you to think that it's nice. I don't need you to approve of anything. All I know is I have resolve around this goal and I'll do whatever it takes to reach it. So that's what 256 means to me. And you use the, the Bruce Lee analogy and it, it's, you know, the man that's practiced the same kick 10,000 times versus the one that's practiced, you know, 10,000 different kicks. Yeah. And to me, what that also suggests is you were talking about the removal of distractions. It makes you, it makes it really easy for you to say no to other things. So you yeah. said, we're going to serve the legal market. We're going to serve it deeply. We're going to understand it well. And anything that isn't that, that isn't, you know, turning probably, it's probably going to net have to be hundreds of law firms into enormous businesses in order to achieve that $2.5 billion number. That is the only thing that we're oriented so around. So let me, let me hit on this quick, because this is like, just hit on like the gold right there. When you asked me before the interview, what are like the key decisions? And the key decision is, is like one of them is am not going to get distracted. And I remember this. Oh gosh. Okay. When we, we were running PPC ads for ourselves for lawyers nationwide, we were bidding on keywords like lawyer marketing company. I remember we started getting leads. Lawyers are calling us. It was great. And right there, my creativity started going. I was like, let's replicate this for dentists, right? And at that moment, I'll give a great example here. At that moment, we were doing three-month contracts. We were charging $1,500 a month. We were doing one service. And I thought, well, because we're doing something, I guess let's just replicate it right now because it's working. And I had this really tough struggle. Every night I went to bed questioning, should I go into another niche? Should I go into another niche? Should I go into... Then one day I was just like, let's do six-month contracts. Let's do 12-month contracts. Let's do $3,000 a month. Let's do $5,000 a month. Let's do $6,500 a month, which is where we're at now. And 12-month contracts. Let's offer this service. Let's offer this service. Let's create this strategic partnership. Instead of saying we just get our leads from PPC ads, let's learn how to get the attention of lawyers other ways, like doing webinars and big virtual events, right? Let's learn how to build an email list. Let's learn all this. So because I made the decision to not get distracted, I learned all these amazing skills on business model optimization, on marketing to lawyers. And now if I go into another vertical, it's not going to be a million dollar business. It's going to be a multi eight figure business because I went through the learning period on going deep in one niche to where now it's going to be some serious trouble for other companies in that, in the next space that I go into because of all the intelligence that I've built by staying deep on one vertical. And that you going to give us any clues is, is dentist one of the, one of the considerations? It, it definitely is up there, but it's not at the top of the list. Um, we, we're, we have a prioritized list of the most recession-proof verticals. And dental, believe it or not, is very, very, um, actually is more tied to GDP changes than you would expect. Um, so it's not the top of our list. Got it. Well, uh, 
Bill, this is fantastic. I'm, I'm inspired by your resolve. I'm inspired by uh, your, your comfort with ambition. I think that those are hopefully two big takeaways uh, that listeners will walk away with. Um, as we aim towards wrapping up, I've got my standard last two questions coming up. Uh, but before I ask those, was there anything else you were hoping to share today that I didn't give you a chance to? We don't learn from inaction. We learn in action will never be the perfect time to do anything, to hire someone, to spend more money on marketing. How do you learn how to hire the right people? You learn by hiring the wrong people. How do you learn how to spend what works on marketing? Uh, you learn by wasting money on marketing fast. Now, it, like every single thing that you're waiting to do, someone else is going to get real scar tissue doing it and make progress as you're contemplating it. So that's the one thing I wanted to share. Absolutely. Could not agree more. Um, so if folks want to learn more about SMB team, uh, connect with you in the digital world, you've got shows, you've got virtual events, you've got uh, obviously a, a great funnel that, that can bring in and help uh, law firms. What digital coordinates do you want us to point people towards? Uh, you can just follow me on Instagram, Bill Hauser Biz, H-A-U-S-E-R-B-I-Z. Uh, watch out. I have like 30 spam accounts ripping people off right now for some Forex thing, pretending to be me. That is not me if I message you about Forex. Um, yeah. And, or crypto uh, or any other BS like that. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, uh, yeah, Instagram. And then my personal email is bill at smbteam.com. Perfect. We're gonna and that all SMB Team's YouTube channel. What am I talking about? SMB Team's YouTube channel. We got like, uh, we just released a Magic Johnson interview. Kevin O'Leary, Mr. Wonderful interview uh, on our channel. You, ha you have some monsters on there. You've, you've got, uh, you have the Jocko interviews that you mentioned. You have a, a number of really good ones. I've, I've enjoyed them and uh, I encourage people to go check that out. So we will link that all in the show notes. It is in the app. We're probably listening to this right now or at goingdeepwithaaron.com slash podcast for every single episode of the show. But before we let you go, Bill, I want to give you the mic one final time to issue an actionable personal challenge to the audience. Mm. So my challenge for everyone is to write down the goal. If you had no limitations, if you had a windstorm of cash, if you could attract anyone to be on your team, no limits. What, what could, could be true? But what would that be? Would it be a revenue number in your business? Would it be, I don't know what it is for you. Whatever that limitless leaf is, write it down, put a number on it. Now, the exercise of writing down that phrase, that goal, I want you to ask yourself, why do I need to cross this goal out and lower it? Why, why do I need to reduce the size of this goal or could I just run with it? And if your intuition tells you I can run with it and my invitation for you is to take the most direct path, whatever that statement is you wrote down, to not say that I need to get a plan B in place to not say, I need to build this up first. No, take the most direct step. What if, if you, if this was true for you now, what step would you have already taken at this phase in your life and do that thing right now? No plan B. There is no such thing as plan B. It's just plan A and A1, plan A2. They're all plan A. Okay. So write it down. If you don't cross it out, circle it, then take that first step. And then my last call to action to you is keep writing it down until you stop believing in yourself. I'll give you that challenge. And hopefully you'll never stop believing in yourself and you'll keep writing it down until it becomes true. Absolutely love it. Uh, I'm going to take that challenge. I hope everyone out there does as well. Bill, thank you for sharing your time and wisdom with us today.
Thank you. We just went deep with Bill Hauser. Hope you're out there has a fantastic day. Hey, thanks for listening all the way through that interview. If you enjoyed it, you would also enjoy my past conversation with Jim Shorkey. Jim Shorkey is one of the best car salesmen to ever do it. He scaled his family dealership business from one to nine dealerships through a clarity of vision and a similar path of reading Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill.